if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther. This is when we see how well you know your Bibles. That's always a bugger to try to find, that little book. It's found on page 400, well, I shouldn't tell you, but, well, it's found on page 483. (sighs) Esther chapter 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Medes and the nobles and governors and provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violent hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There was There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of the palace to do as each man desired. Queen Veshti also gave a feast for the women in the palace, that belonged to King Azasaris. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded, here we go, Mehuman, Bistha, Harbana, Bigtha, and Abigatha, <laughs> Zether, and Carcass, and seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Azasaris to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And, and at this the king became enraged, and his anger burned with, within him. Then the king said to the wise men, who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the man next to him being Kershina, Sethar, Admatha, Teresh, Mares, Marcina, and Memacum, the seven princes of Persia and Media and Medes, who saw the, the king's face and sat first in the kingdom, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vishti, uh, because she has not performed the command of King Azasaris, delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memacan said to, in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against the officials and all the peoples who are in the province of King Azasaris. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Azasaris commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Medes um, have heard the queen's behavior, and they will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written down, 
written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may be not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before the king, come before king as, as a Sarah's. And let the king, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mercum proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province and all its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man um, be master of his own household and speak according to the language of his people. As a young man, William Cowper struggled with, struggled with a severe depression. At the age of 32, Cowper finally decided that he was going to take his life. So one day he hired a carriage to take him to the Thames River. Upon arriving there, the carriage driver, seeing that he was what he was about to do, um, grabbed him, forced him back into the carriage, and he was not able to jump in the river as he, as he planned. Later that afternoon, Cowper took some poison, but someone found out, and in enough time was able to give him the antidote. The next day, Cowper took a, uh, a knife and, and tried to fall on it, but the knife broke in half, and he didn't even hurt himself. So that afternoon, he tried to hang himself, but a neighbor... Concerned about the young man, found him hanging and was able to cut him down before his life ended. To Cowper's frustration, God was unwilling to allow him to take his life. But because the depression continued, Cowper increasingly turned to the Lord and began to trust in the Lord as his, as his only Savior. Later, he struck up a friendship with John Newton, and through Newton's influence and and encouragement, Cowper began to write some hymns. Ultimately, he wrote 67 hymns, including this familiar one. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-ending skill, he treasures up his bright designs, and works his sovereign will. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. As we study the book of Esther, we need to do as Cowper said, and judge not the Lord by what we can see, but we need to come and approach this book with the eyes of faith and learn to trust God just as we see Esther in our story. As we watch the story unfolding, there's going to be times where we, we kind of scratch our head and we, we wonder, what is the Lord up to? And that's the amazing thing about our God. While it doesn't always make sense to us, He knows exactly what He's doing. And as we hear the story and we see how the pieces all begin to fall in place, we just have to shake our heads at times and say, wow, what a mighty God we serve. Only he could pull off something like this. Now, while this is a beautiful story, it's also frustrated scholars over the years. Can anyone tell me why? 
What's different about this book that's not the same as any other book in the Bible? Anyone? God is not mentioned. It's not mentioned once. Nor is sacrifice or, or even other things like that that you would normally assume would be in a book like this. I know Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, said he disliked the book of Esther because he regarded it as too Judaistic and full of heathen perverseness. But despite what we might think, God, in His infinite wisdom, He's ordained this book to be part of our Bibles, and and clearly there's much we can learn from this book about God, and about ourselves even. While God's name is not found in the pages of this book, Yet you can find his fingerprints on almost every page, on everything that's, that's going on. When you see how things just, the dots connect and, and things happen for a reason and, and to the climax of the story where everything comes together, you, you can't help but say, only God could do that. Only God could pull that off. And while God has some invisible qualities at times. Yet he's still present here. Even though we might think he's absent, he's not. He's orchestrating everything. He's guiding everything. And we have to remember that because he's doing that today too. He's orchestrating everything. He's guiding everything. And even though there's things happening in our world that we don't care for and that we shake our heads about and and Hopefully you're in prayer over, yet we have to remember that our God is in control. He's sovereign and mighty, and we don't have to fear. I think you could say that God's sovereignty and His invincibleness is the theme of this entire book. And just as He was guiding and leading and directing the lives of of those in our story, often without their even being aware that, that He was present, that He was there at all, So God is doing the same in each of our lives. Now the story of Esther, it takes place when uh, the Jews were in exile. You might remember that when Jerusalem fell to Babylon around 586 B.C., the residents of of Jerusalem were taken to Babylon. But then Babylon was was conquered by the the Persians. And that's kind of the setting of when our our story takes place. Um, this, this king that I, I mentioned before, King Azaceras, that's really not his name. It's, it's more like a, a title, like Tsar or Pharaoh or, or something like that. Actually, his real name is King Xerxes the Great. And uh, history says a lot about this man. He reigned from 485 to 465 B.C. And at the time Esther's story begins, King Xerxes, he, he was in his third year of a 21-year reign. He was a powerful king, ruling an empire that went from Ethiopia to India, which is it's a lot of country. And at the time, there was no one in the world that was more powerful than this king. Now, King Xerxes, he decided to hold a banquet. The first banquet was for his officials and servants, for his army and nobles, Um, those who were governors of the different provinces, 127 to be exact. The banquet lasted for 180 days, which was how long? How many months? Six months. 
Six months this party lasted. Every single day for six months. I hope that says a lot to you about who this king is and what he thought about himself. Because during that six months, it wasn't just to be an encouragement to the people, but it was to show his splendor to the people, to show his greatness to all his officials so that they would follow him. And, and I think also to, to gain support because he was about to attack Greece and, and he was going to need that. And we'll talk more about that next time. He would need that support. But when this feast was over, there was a second feast, and that was for just the regular people in, in the, the city of, of Susa. And uh, apparently, just like in the other feast, they were allowed to eat and drink to their heart's content, as much as they wanted or as little as they wanted. And you can just imagine with this kind of a feast, with that kind of wine, that this kind of uh, thing led to excess and debauchery and, and drunkenness. Verse 9 tells us that Queen Vashti also threw a feast for the women of the palace um, that was separate from the men. I guess back then, men and women, they didn't party together. So for six months, King Xerxes, he displayed all that he was. Um, archaeologists who have uh, been digging in, in that city, they've uncovered things that um, King Xerxes wrote about himself. And, and he often refers to himself as the great king or the king of kings, which again tells you something about his mindset of how much he thought about himself. I don't think he struggled with an inferiority complex at all. He, he definitely had a huge ego. On the last day of the banquet, when the king was merry, and I'm sure he was drunk, the king had a sudden inspiration. While he was displaying all the beautiful things that he owned, he now wanted to show off his greatest trophy, which he thought was his wife. Now, Queen Vashti, she wasn't just one of his wives, because he had many wives, but she was actually the, the queen. And her name actually means beautiful woman in the Persian language. We're, we're told that Vashti was uh, born to Babylonian royalty. Her grandfather was Nebuchadnezzar. Her father was Belshazzar. And you might remember those names when we were studying the book of Daniel. In verse 10, we're told that King Xerxes commanded the seven eunuchs that served under him to go get the queen and, and bring her back to him. The only problem was King Xerxes, he wanted the queen to appear before this large group of probably drunken men, drunken officials. He wanted her to uh, appear just wearing her crown, and her gown, of course, but, but no veil. And that was something that was unheard of back then. Women just didn't do that. They always wore a veil when they, they came into, in, when they were in public. But again, King Xerxes, he wants to show his wife off and he's an, he saw his wife as another possession. And, and so, rightly so, the queen refused to appear to that group without a veil on. And her husband became quite angry. In fact, we're told he, he was in a rage. And this king, he was known for his occasional fits of, of rage. Historians tell us other stories about him. Let me at least share one with you. For example, in his military campaign against Greece, he once ordered a bridge to be built over the Hellespont, a channel of water that separates Greece and, and Turkey. 
However, upon uh, completion of this great project, and just before he was able to use it and cross over with his army, apparently a big storm came from the ocean and it completely destroyed the bridge. This so infuriated him that he ordered his officers to give the sea 3,000 lashes, just to hit the water 3,000 times. He also told his men to throw uh, um, ankle chains and leg irons into the water, um, symbolic, I guess, and then he beheaded all, all those who worked on the bridge. It says a lot about this man. In our story, since he was drunk and on the advice of his counsel or, or his wise men, he impulsively, impulsively forbids the queen from ever coming into his presence again, which he's going to later regret, but again, we'll talk about that another time. In the book of Esther, King Xerxes, who, who considered himself all-powerful and mighty and sovereign, I think you could say he's being contrasted with another king, which seems kind of humorous in a way because that other king isn't even mentioned, his name, but clearly, again, his presence is felt everywhere. On each page, you can see his fingerprints, his handiwork. When talking about the sovereignty and invincibleness of, of God, I think it's important to remind ourselves of who God is and, and what Scripture says about him. In Romans 11.33, Paul marvels at who God is, and he says this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of his wisdom and knowledge, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? Who can be God's counselor? Who can give God advice? We know the answer to that. No one. His ways are beyond ours, his thoughts above ours. And that's what Isaiah says in 55. He, he, God says this there in that, that chapter. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And then just a few verses after that, it says this. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I, I purpose and shall succeed to the, to the thing for which I sent it. So when you pair God's wisdom and his knowledge with his sovereignty, his sovereign power, I hope this fills you with confidence and hope. Nothing can stop God's will from being done. Nothing can stop his will from being done. I love the way Nebuchadnezzar described um, who God was at the end of his uh, time of um, where he lost his mind and he, he was like an animal out in the, in, the, in the woods in the prairie. And he says this, Daniel 4, His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the people of the earth. No one can hold back his, his hand or say to him, what have you done? In our story, the story of Esther, God is using all things, the good things as well as the bad, which we're going to hear more of next time, to accomplish his will. And when you realize that, when you realize how great and mighty and powerful our God is, how we can take the good and the bad and use it for our good, it's then you can begin to understand why Paul said, if God is for us, who can be against us? 
If God is doing all that for us, using all those things, the good and the bad in our lives, even our sin when we surrender it to Him, if God can do all that, we don't have nothing to fear. Because God still has our best in mind. We can be assured of His love. Paul says in Romans 8 that God will work all things for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purposes. All things. That's what we were just talking about. The best things that happen to you as well as the worst, God can use for our good. In Romans 8, Paul's not saying that everything always works out for everybody, but he's speaking specifically of God's children here. That God will work all things out for our good, for His children's good. And again, that should comfort you. It should give you hope. That no matter what you're facing, even if you don't understand it and understand why God is doing what He's doing, we can trust His love. We can still have hope because He's got us in the palm of His hands and He's never going to let us go. He's all-knowing, always present, all-powerful. Evil may be temporarily permitted, but ultimately it is frustrated Behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. That was a line out of Cowper's hymn. Chuck Swindoll says the story of Esther pulsates with a significance for our day and for our lives. Against the vast scenes of of state and empire in our world, no matter who our leaders are or our enemies, our God is sovereign. And we must remain sensitive to his hand moving not only through God's people, but also in carnal, secular, and even drunken places. Only then can we bring to our broken world the hope it so desperately needs. God uses all things for our good. And God wants to use us in those places, even those questionable places. We need to stand firm in our faith, stand firmly upon the rock, but then we need to be a light and a witness for the Lord. In the 1930s, the communist dictator Stalin, he ordered a a purge of all the Bibles and all believers in uh, one of the provinces in in Russia. And and apparently Stalin and his his army, they they carried this out with vengeance. And uh, they they confiscated thousands of Bibles and thousands of people were were put in the the gulags. Most Most of them died there for being enemies of the state just because they professed to believe in Jesus. Well, in this town where all those Bibles had been uh, confiscated, um, after Stalin passed away years later, um, uh, there was a a mission group that that, that came, and they, they wanted to witness to the people there. And they had ordered a cases and cases of Bibles that they were planning on passing out, but um, apparently that shipment never uh, was shipped. And, and so that was a big part of what they were going to do there is these Bibles, but they couldn't. But then they heard from a local that one of the warehouses had thousands of Bibles stacked in it, thousands of Bibles that had been confiscated years before by Stalin and his, his army. And so after much prayer, one of the uh, leaders of, of this mission group, they decided to uh, contact the, the city officials and ask them if they might have these Bibles. 
And they were amazed at the, the reply because um, apparently the official said to him, well, we were planning on throwing all those Bibles away next week anyway, so you're welcome to have all of them. And so the next day, they went with a truck and, and loaded up thousands of Bibles. Well, when they went to uh, load these Bibles up, they hired a couple people from the local university because they knew that this was going to take a little bit, having that many Bibles. And uh, apparently one of them, one of the, the helpers was um, agnostic, and, and clearly he, he did not know the Lord or love the Lord, and, and uh, he only wanted to be there for a day's wages. He, he wasn't interested in, in, in those Bibles at all, or, or so he said. But as they were loading the Bibles, um, the team, the mission team, um, they noticed that suddenly he disappeared. And so they began to look for him. And apparently he had slipped away, hoping to quietly take a, a Bible for himself, curious as to what it said, because he had never read it before. But what he found shook him to the, the core. Because of the thousands of Bibles that were there in the, the warehouse, the one Bible that he took ended up being his great-grandmother's. Apparently her name was written in the front of it, and he began to cry. He couldn't believe it. And so when they found him in the warehouse, um, apparently he was saying over and over again, how could this be possible? God really is real. How could this be possible? God really is real. Only God could pull off something like that. That of the one Bible this man took, it was his (laughs) great-grandmother's. In the weeks to come, I pray the story of Esther will be a great encouragement to all of you. Not only making you in awe of the mighty God we serve, because He is mighty and powerful and sovereign and wise, but also, I hope it encourages you to put your trust in Him as we see Esther about to do and and, uh, some of the other characters in our our story. Um, But we'll continue with that next time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we just thank you for the book of Esther. Thank you for this story, for the encouragement it brings us, reminding us of what a mighty God we serve, that you are in control and we don't have to be afraid. Forgive us, Lord, when we try to work things out in our own strength and our own power and we make such a mess of things, when all along we should have just looked to you and, and drawn from your strength. Father, we just pray that we might be encouraged by this story and we might find ways to apply it to our own lives. Thank you, Lord, for your great love for us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. My God.